Well, good morning. So we are going through a series on the Gospel of John that we just started, but we're also in a season that Christians throughout history and across the globe recognize called Advent. And one of the things you probably don't know about Advent is that for over a thousand years, there's been uh, scriptures, certain scriptures that have been focused on, and again, this is happening all across the globe and throughout history. And one of the things that Christians have focused on leading up to Christmas is John the Baptist, which is really strange uh, because John the Baptist is really strange. And the reason that happens is because before you get to the solution, John the Baptist makes us aware of the problem. Now we're in the gospel of John and in John, we got the polite John the Baptist, right? He's way more kind and, and, and leaves out some of the, you know, the woes and the, you know, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath and all that kind of stuff. But think about this. John the Baptist is not peace on earth, goodwill to all. John the Baptist is uh, calling down judgment on our head because he's trying to make us aware of the very things we very much don't want to be aware, aware of, which is... Before you receive a savior, you gotta need saving. You gotta recognize you have a need for saving. And so I wanna start with a question this morning. Do you think that what is right with humanity is enough to fix what's wrong with humanity? And if you do, you came by that naturally. I mean, it's in the air, and it's been in the air, especially among people of European descent and in the West for over 300 years. Um, so there's a guy named Yuval Noah Harari who is the um, kind of patron of secular humanists. And he wrote a book um, back a couple of years ago called Homo Deus, which is Latin for human gods. And he opens up this book like this. He said, at the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up to an amazing realization. Most people really don't think about it, but for the last few decades, we have managed to rein in famine, plague, and war. Of course, these problems have not been completely solved, but they have been transformed from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. We don't need to pray to any god or saint to rescue us from them. We know quite well what needs to be done in order to prevent famine, plague, and war, and we usually succeed in doing it. And then he goes on for a few hundred pages talking about how human beings have improved and basically we're just going to keep improving. But <laughs> Harari's book had really bad timing because it comes out like 2019. And then what happens? Famine, plague, and war. And it turns out what was true all along, but which we are so naive in thinking in the West, that we can manage this that we're able to fix this. So it's not just that. In the last few hundred years in the West, the Enlightenment has told us basically, and it's in the air, that if we'll just stop with all the enchanted spiritual stuff, if we'll stick to facts instead of like faith, if we'll get rid of all transcendent stuff and just you know what can be stuck under a microscope, 
then we'll be able to get rid of all the stuff human beings struggle with, like, uh, you know, oppression and injustice. And I would just like to ask, how's that working out for us? I mean, is there anyone here who would like to make the case that human beings have basically gotten um, improved our situation? Our, we have better amenities, we have more comfort, we might have lived longer because of medicine, and yet we're more likely to kill ourselves by our own hand. We have more than our ancestors could have ever dreamed, and yet we're so deeply unhappy. And more than that, I think it's a good question to ask, have we in our modern world with all our technological advancement built more medicine or missiles? Because what it seems to me is that what we've really done is just made better weapons. We haven't gotten rid of greed. And the reason, I know this isn't a great place to start for a sermon, um, and yet, I think it's important for us to be able to admit the problem because we're trying to fix a sickness and we don't know what the sickness is. You wouldn't go to a doctor who was like, I want to try something out on you, right? Nobody wants to go to that doctor. So in order to understand what's wrong, let's go to the Gospel of John. And this is one of the best passages in all the Bible. It's such good news. John chapter 1, starting in verse 14. And the word that, that, that we talked about last week, the word, the logos, the, the logic of God, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made made him know. Do you hear that? The law came through Moses. Now, a lot of us, when we think of the law, we think of rules. And there are, there are commandments, obviously, in the law, but it's so much more than that. To say the law is just rules is like saying the cross is just wood. It is that, but it's a lot more than that. When Israel first got the law, think about this. They had been in slavery for 400 years. God is bringing them out of slavery, and he's going to show them how to live. That's what the law is. It's the grace. Did you hear the Gospel of John? Grace already given. The law was a grace. You don't just take a bunch of recently freed slaves and, you know, drop them off somewhere and say, figure it out on your own. We tried that before. It's called Australia. No, God is showing them the best possible way to live. It's grace. And I want you to see the law was not a condition of the relationship of God and Israel. It was confirmation of it. Look in Exodus chapter 20. This is before God gives any commandments. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. They have already been freed, and then he gives them the law. So God gives them a law, not so if they obeyed it, they would be his people, but because they were his people for them to live. Um, the problem was, and this is where you start to see the Bible's uh, 
diagnosing the human condition, the thing that we all struggle with, they could not obey it. They couldn't obey it even for a little bit. The best way to explain this was when I was growing up, there were songbooks in every church. And in the, I think it was the blue songbooks, not the red songbooks, you opened it up and there were on the front the 10 commandments of the songbook. Do you remember this? How many of y'all, show of hands, saw that? Okay, so I'm like 11, 12 years old. I open up these books and you know what happens when I see these commandments? I get all kinds of great ideas of what to do. I, you know, like, thou shalt not bend my spine. I'm like, I never even thought of bending your spine. <laughs> thou shalt not use me as a weapon to hit other people. And I'm like, that's a great idea. <laughs> so what happens with law, and this is true, this is true of all of us, right? When the rules come, there's something inside all of us that immediately want to break them. And that's what happens with the law. I mean, Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting, you know, thou shalt have no other gods before me, thou shalt not make graven images. While he's up there getting the commandments, he comes down and what are they doing? They're doing exactly the thing God had just told them not to do. And Israel, they saw this as like exactly what happened with Adam and Eve. They called it the fall of Israel. In fact, when Moses comes down and is like, what's going on? Did you notice just like Adam blamed Eve, Aaron blames them? This is the fall of Israel. And these are God's people. This is not, you know, the worst of us. This is the best of us. It's like no matter how good the law is, and it is good, it doesn't work because of us. And so... John is saying, look, Moses doesn't come, or Jesus doesn't come the same way the law came. I mean, God doesn't just double down on rules. I mean, how cruel would that be? I see you're really struggling with 10, so here's an extra 20. No, that, God doesn't do that. Instead, he comes with grace and truth. Let me explain that. Grace, Jesus is what you and I aren't. He is a new Adam, a new kind of humanity. We're given the opportunity to be born again into this kind of new humanity. Jesus doesn't lie because Jesus is never a liar. Jesus doesn't kill, but he is killed. He doesn't kill because he's never uh, full of, of hatred and wrath. Not like that. Jesus came in the flesh, full of both grace and truth, a different kind of of humanity. And I want you to think about what it means for the logos, the word to become flesh. Have you ever been to a concert or a show and the artist is a big deal, you know, Steve Martin came to Little Rock or Jim Gaffigan or, um, or who's, who's a uh, famous concert that happened in, uh, who was it? Uh, Elton John. Elton John came to Little Rock last year. Okay, when you, if you went to see Elton John in the Verizon, uh, wait, yeah, what's the, what's the Verizon Arena called now? Simmons. Simmons, thank you, yeah, gotta stay on brand. So, the Simmons Arena, if you go to, you know, to wait through security, the one thing you're not gonna see is Elton John waiting in line with you, right? Elton being like, I can't wait for this show to start, I'm so excited about it. No, you know where he is? He's in the green room, right? 
He's in the green room that's stocked with everything he's asked for by his writer. Um, here's what John wants you to know. God doesn't do green rooms. He puts on flesh. He steps out of the most privileged place and dwells among us. And he did it to, because, so we could become like him. This is what grace and truth means. There's nothing in your past or present that is surprising to God. And he hasn't called a holy huddle to figure out what to do. He stepped into it. The whole reason he stepped into it is because we were incapable of, of, um, of obeying. Our flesh, when we hear the commands, our flesh rebels. Maybe not against all, but our flesh deep down inside rebels. I mean, this is the story the Bible is telling. Think in Genesis 1 and 2. There's just one command. Don't eat this. God says, here's a naked husband. Here's a naked wife. You can eat anything you want except that. Have fun. And we can't do that. This is the way the Bible is trying to describe what human beings are. And so Jesus comes with truth. He's the fulfillment of the law. He does what we could not do. And grace, forgiveness of our sins. Now, there's an amazing amount of unity throughout the scripture, across culture. But it's all telling the same story. And it's one that we very much don't want to hear in the West. So I've told you before that I was going to tell you the kind of, as we go through the Gospel of John, I was going to show you the critics or the, um, the crit criticism of the Gospel. And this one is everywhere. It's even inside the church. It's just kind of hidden. It's not just on the outside of Christian faith. Sometimes it's in our homes. and Maybe it's in your mirror. It's a false Gospel that sounds really good but it is not the Christian faith. It's this, that people are basically good. Now, we are made in the image of God. It, it, it is nuanced. Every man or woman is made in the image of God. And yet, to say people are basically good, another way to say that is that help isn't really needed. This past week, I got to spend time with a spiritual giant Pasius, who is a church planner in Haiti. A lot of y'all know him well. And he came by the office, and we got to spend some time together. And I told him, I said, you know, in my experience over the last 10 years, my friends who have left Christianity, it started with this, that human beings are basically good. And I told him that, and he, he goes, ha! <laughs> because he lives in Haiti! This man spends, right now he's planning a church where he walks three hours every Sunday up a mountain to be with these people. He is aware, he's deeply aware of the human condition in a way that maybe you're not. And I want to talk about why we're not aware. The great Southern Catholic writer Flannery O'Connor said, you know what sentimentality is? Sentimentality is skipping lightly over the fall and arriving too quickly at a mock state of innocence. I think that's what we do. Christmas doesn't, the incarnation doesn't let us if you take it seriously. I think that, that idea of human beings is naive and, and not self-aware. And it's different than a story the Bible is telling. In the Bible, sin is not just the bad stuff that you do. Do you know that in the Bible, sin is a power. 
It's a principality in power. It's one that we are helpless to defeat. We're powerless against. And so I'm just going to show you a few verses. This is Psalm. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, our culture does not believe this. Some of us ourselves don't believe this. Um, People in our world, and this is a good way to uh, frame it. There are people in our world, in your world, who you know are not good. And they do not know they are not good. Instead, what they do is what we tend to do. They tend to, you know, put somebody next to them and look at them and be like, now that's somebody who's bad. Listen, if you give me 10 minutes, I can, I can get some people together and show you that I'm tall. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's not that funny. So... But that's what we do. We say, look at this person. That's bad. I'm not bad. And that person is doing the same thing. We compare ourselves to other people to prove that we're not that bad. Okay, here's another one. Here's Proverbs 20. Who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean and without sin. This is rhetorical. When the Proverbs said this, nobody's raising their hand saying like, oh, that's me. No. Or what about Paul in Romans? The only, the only place to get true equality I think is Romans 1, 2, and 3 and the gospel. Here's what Paul is doing as he breaks down the barriers of racism between Jews and Gentiles. He, he, he um, dismantles every excuse and he says this, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have all made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. And it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Okay. Merry Christmas. Is that a Merry Christmas text or what? But in this passage, he's saying, look, this is the one thing we have in common. This is the one thing every one of us have in common. We are incapable of righteousness. And if you, if you just are self-aware for a fleeting moment, you can see this is one of the most true things ever written. We, we are powerless in the face of this power. All right, let me give you a little bit more. This is uh, him just a few verses later. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or later in Ephesians, here's what Paul says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions. Now, tell me what power dead people have. None. Dead people can't do anything. You were dead in your transgressions and sin when you used to live, when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us have lived among them at one time. All of us did this, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thought. Like the rest, we were nature of wrath. Here's what he's saying. If you get this, there should never be an arrogant Christian. An arrogant, judgmental, boasting Christian just reveals they don't understand their own faith. Because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Here's the way David says it. He says in the Psalms, surely I was brought forth in iniquity, which means, um, it, you know, your environment doesn't make you a bad person. It had something to do with your growing up. I'm not trying to take away how you were shaped by your environment. What I'm trying to say is that we were all broken to begin with. Your environment just 
you know, was the soil in which your brokenness began to grow. So we can't just blame our parents. I can't because they're sitting right here, but we can't just blame our parents. We can't just blame the circumstances. I was broken before any of that. So here's a question. Do you ever have moments where you just don't make sense to yourself? Where the story you're telling about yourself, the things you've done, don't jive with that. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Why did I enjoy hurting them? Why was I cruel? And if so, the good news is, and this is good news, at least you're self-aware about it. One of the things we're going to see in the Gospel of John is that sometimes people are the most evil when they think they're doing good. Go and look at John 16.3 if you're questioning that. This is the great equalizer. It is the only thing I know of that brings everybody on the same level. We are all in the same boat, and it's sinking. The tragedy of our day, and I, this, this is a tragedy, is that you can just numb yourself from this truth. You can get on a screen. You can put deodorant over your life. Go get a new phone, get some new clothes, get a new car, get a new game. Update your socials. Just watch cable news. Just do something, but don't stop and think. Don't listen to that little quiet voice inside your head. Something is wrong. Just quiet it. And it's not hard to quiet. It, it is expensive, but it's not hard. And somewhere in the middle of that, Christmas is trying to say the word became flesh. And admitting this about ourselves, I think, is the gateway to joy. It is the gateway to true joy. Because we are rebels by nature. We don't have to be trained in it. We don't have to practice it. It's just true about us. And if you would pay attention to your own heart, with God's grace, you might just see it. Because God's response to us is nothing short of spectacular. Do you know how Jesus enters the world? As a, as a baby in Palestine, but look what he's coming to do. He says himself, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. If you can be aware of the love of God, you can be suspicious about your own virtues. He's not trying to take something from us. He's trying to give us something. We have got to get out of our mind as followers of Jesus that we're in some kind of moral cage. You know, we got to live this way and it stinks, but at least we get heaven. Because that's not reality. The teachings of Jesus on things like uh, money and gossip and sex and family and anger, all these things are not God robbing you of joy. It's seeding joy in your life. All these, because Jesus comes and he doesn't give us a bunch of commandments. You know what he does? He gives us one. He gives us a new commandment he gives us. Love one another the way I have loved you. All the teachings of Jesus are boundary markers for love, real love defined by Jesus, the kind that bleeds for people, that never tries to use people, because God is not like that. In fact, God is like this. The Word became flesh. 
and made his dwelling among us. We have seen the glory of the one and only sent from the Father, full of both grace and truth. I want to I continually point out in this gospel, when you see passages like this that make your heart swell, and as, as it should, what it's also saying is that you can't do this. A, a, a messy hand cannot clean a messy surface. It just smears the mess. You can't do this, not by your blood, not by the sweat of your brow, not by your will, and not by your might, but it can be done by God. It has been done by God. The problem in my head and my heart and your head and your heart cannot be fixed by us. It is an impossibility, but it is not impossible for God. Do you know who doesn't rejoice in their doctors? Healthy people. When last year, when Leslie had her seizures and was in the hospital for three days, um, it took a while before we figured out what was going on, what was wrong. And when we talked to the neurosurgeon, we rejoiced, we gloried in our doctors once they figured it out. You know who doesn't glory in their neurosurgeon? healthy people. You, you probably don't even have a neurosurgeon, right? You're not going home today and being like, oh, Dr. Bob rules. And the reason you're not is because you're healthy. And if you're healthy, you don't glory in what can cure you. But when you're sick, then you can rejoice. This is actually the illustration Jesus uses. I did not come for the healthy. I came for the sick. So here's the question. In a world that thinks it's healthy, even as it's fallen apart, are you brave enough to admit you're sick so you can glory in the doctor? <laughs> so back in September, um, Leslie and I started doing Dave Ramsey back in August because single income, you know, inflation, five kids, all that. And because of that, uh, I had to make some changes to payroll and retirement and all that stuff. And when I did, uh, Tanya Tennyson was like, hey, it, you're not paying in to taxes and Social Security. It doesn't look like you're paying in like you're supposed to be. And I was like, no, I am. And so I sent an email to our CPA, who is a church member in Abilene, where we used to go. And he didn't respond, which is a bad sign. So after a day, I called him, and he said, Jonathan, I don't make mistakes like this, but I made a huge one. For years, I've been clicking the wrong button on the tax program with your family, and that means you functionally haven't been paying the majority of your taxes for years. And after penalties and interest, that means you are going to owe the IRS $71,000. Yeah, that's how I felt. (laughs) Don't worry, this isn't like a fundraiser sermon. (laughs) 
And I immediately, was just my heart sank. I knew what that meant. Because <laughs> the IRS doesn't take payment and, you know, kids. So <laughs> I knew that was something that was going to be a decade-long thing, that it was going to change the trajectory of my family's life, like kids going to college, that kind of thing. And then Brother Jerry, who's just a good old dude in Abilene, he said, so I took my wife to lunch, and we talked about it, and we're going to pay every penny. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had anything like that, but <laughs> I didn't know what to say. It's like this guy was giving our family a Tesla, except we don't have a Tesla. And I, I, I was speechless. I said, Brother Jerry, I don't know what to say. And he said, look, it's complicated because I'm on the hook. I, this was my responsibility too. But the best I can say is this is grace. And all of a sudden, all these passages in the New Testament started to make sense. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors or the helplessness people who are dead and lost because I was absolutely helpless and this week I got this letter from the IRS just this week listing out these astronomical sums that have been paid and it says right in the middle your account is paid in full at this time and <laughs> As someone who didn't have that kind of money, all I can feel is so much grace. And I happen to know that that phrase paid in full has been used by accountants for over 2,000 years. The word that it used to be in Greek was the word te telestai. Let me hear you say the word te telestai. They would stamp it on bills that were paid in full. And you know that word because it's in the Gospel of John. As Jesus, the word become flesh, full of both grace and truth, hangs on the cross for a power, to break a power that he was not subject to. His last words are, it is finished. Or, in the Greek, Paid to less die. Paid in full. Because Jesus came and died at, from the first Christmas on to heal the crack in the universe that runs through every human heart and home. It's the crack called sin. And some of us are deeply aware of it, even if we don't have that word. There is a God. We, if there is a God who knows our thoughts and words and deeds, then we know intuitively it's not good news for us. This is no self-help sermon to tell us you're enough. You are not enough, and neither am I. But over and over again in the Gospels, the people who are aware that they are not enough, who weren't, knew they weren't good enough for God, those were the people that Jesus was closest to and welcomed. And so about 33 years after his birth, Jesus died on a cross just outside Jerusalem. 
And on the face of it, it looked like the religious leaders and the Roman authorities planned it. But John wants you to know, Jesus planned it too. He chose to die, not to condemn us. God did not send his son to condemn us, but to save us. Some of y'all know Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the um, confessing church leader in Nazi Germany. He refused to bend his knee to Nazism or Hitler, and because of that, he was eventually killed. He spent the last year, year and a half of his life in a Nazi prison. And while he was in the Nazi prison, he said this, a prison cell in which one waits and hopes and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Help must come from outside. And it has come and comes daily and answers in the word that is Jesus Christ. I'd like to invite our prayer teams to take their places around the room. We're going to sing a song while they do this. And if you would like to go to any of these people and pray with them while we're singing, maybe it's about your own sin or something that you want. God, God loves to forgive us. He, he loves to say, let me take that from you. Or maybe it's about something going on in your life. Here's what Christmas means. What's right about humanity can never fix what's wrong with humanity, but it can be fixed by someone. And praise God that someone has come. Grace upon grace. Let's stand and worship. And if you want, go to one of these people. Merciful Savior, gracious Redeemer, was slow in your anger, rich in your love, and full of compassion, and longing to
Search every corner, cleanse every heart, and here is my heart, Lord, yielded and broken. Merciful Lord, come and restore, here is my The prayer teams are going to be here for a few moments longer if you want to go and talk to them about something going on in your life or um, if you'd like to know more about following Jesus or putting him on in baptism, they'd love to talk to you about that as well. All right, my brothers and sisters, until next week, a benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May we receive that grace and may it change us and make us grateful this week. Go in peace.